This podcast is brought to you by Electric Power Systems. EPS is a leading provider of high-power, scalable powertrains that are certifiable for electrified aviation. It develops energy storage systems, DC fast charging stations, and electric propulsion products for aerospace, defense, automotive, marine, and industrial traction industries. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Aviation Renaissance with Spencer and Spencer. I'm Spencer. That's Spencer. You can't they, see they us, can't, but... I was going to say, they can't know, see you pointing totally at fine. me. It's cool. It's fine. They can look through their mind's eye and see me pointing at Wait, you. I thought anyway, it was Devin. Oh, well, they kind of res- Devin and Spencer. Oh, that probably yeah. would ruin no. the show. They, they kind of look identical almost yeah. a little Goodness. bit. I get confused it, on a day to day basis. It's funny that you say You're that because one. Joe asked me today if they were related, and I was like, they don't look like brothers. They look like inbred first cousins. <laughs> so, and that was a hit on you, not on Devin. Uh, Someone got um, over the stick, and we know who that is. We want to <laughs> let everybody know that they should definitely tune in all the time, but especially for August, because August is a special month. EPS is designating August as Women in Aviation Month. So when we are at the Oshkosh Air Show in Wisconsin the last week of July, we are going to be doing podcasts with all women in aerospace, and we'll be releasing all of those in August with bonus content. So stay tuned and listen to the awesome women that we know that are in the aviation and aerospace industry. So you've already heard him because he uh, jumps the gun on everything. (laughs) But today's guest (laughs) is our director of manufacturing, Mr. Dan Lane. Dan, how are you? I'm doing excellent. Awesome. So... It seems to be a theme on this podcast. Oh, boy, I know where this is going. How many degrees do you have? Let's just get that out of the way. I have two degrees. Oh. But, but just to rewind real quick, because we had a conversation before we started this podcast in yes. terms of the title. Oh, and correct. We, we already got it wrong. Yeah, you missed a key word in the well, official Well, no, title. because you said it's one of three. You said it's Director of Manufacturing Engineering, Director of Manufacturing, or Director of Engineering. So which one is it? Let's put director dot dot dot. Oh, perfect. That, that works. It's, it's because I really don't know what you I, do on a daily basis. I don't even know what I do on a daily basis. Okay. <laughs> it's perfect. I mean, I see you wandering around the floor, like taking curtains down on part. You're the janitor. Oh, there you go. I will say I have found that the Surface tablet is the new clipboard. You oh. walk around with that and no one asks you questions. Oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> Great that's way good. to look busy. Okay. So Dan has two degrees. One of them, I'm going to see if I can get this right. I'm not going to say if there's bachelor's or master's, but I know that you have one in mechanical engineering. Correct. And one in physics. Correct. Are they both bachelor's or do you have a master's? They're both bachelor's. Oh, lame. I know. I this, tried. This from a guy with no education over here. Like, None what gives you whatsoever. The right? Why is the janitor mocking me? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how he made it here. He just showed up and he had the same name as me. So we invited him on the show. They keep paying me. I go to work mm. and I keep getting a paycheck. And here we are. So, so anyway, where'd you get your degrees from? I went to Hiram College in Central Ohio for physics and then Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio for mechanical engineering. I have not heard of either one of those colleges. They're, they're a little far away. Okay. Little well-known. Do they specialize in physics? Is that why you went there? Uh, Hiram is a Bachelor of Arts in physics. It's more of a liberal arts college. And then Case is definitely an engineering mindset college. Um, so over on the east side, that definitely a well-known college. And were you born and raised in Ohio? Yes. 
And you have a lot of family that still lives out there, right? Yeah, I have. I think a total a total of eight siblings altogether, including myself. I think I still have six in Ohio, one in Wyoming, and one in Utah. Sweet. So this is kind of a replay of the Joe James podcast. Joe has eight kids in his family. Where are you in line? Uh, we are at the bottom. You're well, you're at the bottom. Myself and my twin. Oh, that's right. You do have a twin. I do. And now, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but you also have eight siblings. Yes, I do. No twin, though. It's weird how it works out. We've already right. spent a whole 10 minutes on this topic. Not so. even four minutes. It was felt like 10. Yeah, but, but a 10 minutes between 16 siblings, like that's uh. only 30 <laughs> seconds a piece or so. Right. By how much attention they So I'm going to ask you, like, like, did you enjoy growing up in your big family? Oh, absolutely. Do you want to have a big family? Absolutely not. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's what that's everybody right from a big family says. They love yes. their big family. They don't want to have one. So we're not going to revisit this episode of, or this this conversation of big families because we've already done it. But um, tell us about you growing up. What did Dan like to do growing up? Sure. So, you know, growing up, much like any other kid, you know, did a lot of outdoor stuff, um, everything from fishing, paintball. We kind of grew up in that heyday right around, I think, like, you know, early 2000s, mid-2008, uh, sometime around then. Um, just, you know, doing a lot of that, hanging out with the neighborhood kids. And, uh yeah, from there it was uh, spending a lot of time working in manufacturing, even through high school, worked for a local machine shop uh, after school, and then up through college, working summers at a number of machine shops. Uh, so kind of started early in that realm, uh, ended up buying some equipment, you know, working out of the garage, doing some custom work here and there. Uh, it just kind of been been like that ever since. So your, your um, desire to work with mechanics and machining and your hands and that kind of stuff started at a pretty young age. Yeah, started at a very, very young age. Now, I asked, I, I have the same kind of mind. I have a mechanical geared mind. Like I like putting things together. I like taking things apart. And that came from my childhood because mm -hmm. we did have eight kids in our family. Two parents don't really have a lot of money to go around. So my dad had to fix everything. Mm -hmm. And my older brothers weren't really interested in doing that. So I jumped in with my dad and helped. And that's where my love of fixing things and knowing how things work and putting them together and taking them apart stemmed from. Okay. Is that the same for you? Yeah, but for a pretty similar upbringing to you. Um, you know, for whatever reason, it's always just kind of been kind of interesting, you know, in, in design and manufacturing and kind of product development. Um, so maybe slightly different in that sense, but still very much involved, you know, fixing things, taking things apart. Taking things apart that you realize you can't put, can't put back together. <laughs> it happens people quite get, frequently. People get angry at you apparently over that. Yeah, mm -hmm. they do. Apparently that's a no-no when you're a kid. But. It's really bad when you have leftover nuts and bolts from a project. You've taken something apart and you put it back together. You just have spares or you did it more efficiently. That's <laughs> what that means. <laughs> I mean, that's we, we are in means. the class of uh, lower, lowering the weight on objects. So <laughs> I think true. if you just throw a nut and bolt off to the side and... Uh, it's fine. Out that's of sight, fine. Out of sight, out of mind. If nothing rattles, <laughs> it's going to work fine. So here's a funny story about how non-mechanically inclined my co-host is, right? Oh, he's, oh this is he's, exciting. He's very smart when it comes to business and analytics and that kind of stuff and numbers and all that kind of stuff. So way better than at it than I am, right? Well, you know the roller coaster over at SNS Worldwide? Yes. So we got the opportunity to ride that roller coaster on Tuesday. I heard. And they were giving us a tour of the factory and they were showing us this cool new ride that they're going to do. World changing. Innovative. And Parkinson reaches down. And starts taking bolts out. I touched oh, a bolt and it was loose. So. Uh -huh. But I touch one thing and all of a sudden this bolt just wiggles out. And I'm like, that's why they don't let me on the floor. 
I'm not allowed to touch things. And it was a little bit nerve-wracking sitting on the roller coaster with him next to me knowing that this thing could spontaneously Ooh, let me touch fall this bolt. Apart. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> That's I mean, when you go to like Six Flags and you're sitting into the roller coaster. You yep. start discussing, why is the boat on the seat in front of us loose? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> what if you I just got to say it, over here? say it loud enough that people in front of you hear it. But yeah. the thing about it, it makes it scarier. Is, is it would be loose if he was sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm. It's the nature of the beast. It, it is. is the nature of the beast. Okay, <laughs> so you are done with college. Yes. And what did you do after you were done with school? So after college, I went into product development and worked for a company called Design Central uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Worked for them for about, I think it was a year, year and a half. Did a lot in consumer good development, so a lot for Procter & Gamble, um, a a few other uh, big name companies, Worthington Industries, uh, worked a lot with them. After that point, ended up moving to another company called EG Galero. Uh, So it was a heavy focus in medical device development. Oh. Interesting. Yep. So spent about two, a year and a half, two years with them. Uh, They ended up moving our branch down uh, or from central Ohio down to North Carolina. Uh, At that point, I ended up going independent. So working as a contractor, Uh, spent about a year and a half, two years doing that. And then I actually came out to uh, Utah for the first time, ended up at EPS in 2019. Yeah. You started at EPS in 2019. I started in 2020, and I started on the day of your two-week notice. What a coincidence. <laughs> it is a coincidence. And, and yet, somehow, I'm back. Uh, somehow, you're back. Okay, we got to go back to this. So, wh- what drove you to EPS in Utah? You're on the East Coast. Why would you come here? East Coast? You know, I was looking at the uh, the outdoor life. So, big-time fishermen, mm. hiking, all that stuff. And Utah's always been kind of well-known for that. You know, skiing, fishing, hiking, fly fishing. I'll just keep going back to fly fishing. But, uh, <laughs> that's probably the main reason. Uh, but yeah, I was looking at kind of coming out to West, whether it's Montana, Utah, Wyoming. Uh, always kind of enjoyed Salt Lake City area. So I was looking in Salt Lake. Uh, ended up talking with a few recruiters. And at the time, Corey Newman uh, was working with one of the recruiters. And we got linked up together, uh, started talking, ended up coming out here. And uh, kind of the rest is history. Well, he left us. I, I, he he left us in February of 2020. Yeah, I, I can't deny that. That's that's absolutely true. <laughs> it so is. So why did you leave, and then why did you come back? Why did I leave, and why did I come back? Um, at the time, you know, it was kind of between the uh, the freedom of contracting and mm. and the demands of EPS. Uh, Love the company, but at the time, financially for me, it made sense to to keep going independent, mm. um, and, and work in that structure. Uh, but then after about a year and a half of doing that, Corey Newman had reached back out. Oh, I think it was about now seven months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, living in Ohio, Corey called up. We had a quick discussion. And then I was told, you know, can you be out here in two weeks? <laughs> well, he pulled a fast one on you. It was like a bait and switch because uh, he got you to come out. And then he stepped down for f- family reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's still contracted to EPS and he yep. does things every now and then. Absolutely. Epic is actually Corey Newman's brainchild. I- I'm a well aware of this. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about, is is EPS your first soiree into the aerospace industry? It is my first soiree into aerospace. Um, working in medical, it's, it's very similar in terms of the regulatory requirements um, and everything else that kind of goes in line with it. So very similar processes and quality control systems that you need to follow. 
But in terms of aviation, yes, EPS is my first soiree into aviation. What do you think about it so far? It's phenomenal. Enjoy it. Uh, enjoy what we do. It's a great, great company to be with. Very exciting, dynamic environment. You know, I've told many people uh, working in engineering, um, you know, you have a lot of engineers that end up knowing one thing. So I know friends from college, they work for, let's say, Parker Hannafin. Mm-hmm. They know O-rings. And that's it. That That's it. And, and they're, every day, they're... Their days are filled with discussion about, you know, what's your gland compression? What's your materials? Did you just say gland compression? Yes. That's a great term. I'm going to start using that from now on. <laughs> I have no idea what it means, but I like it. O-ring gland, gland compression. So how much that O-ring is going to compress when it's put into the gland? I, I figured as much, but I like, just like that it's called gland compression. Uh, it's, it's compression. I don't know if it's gland compression, but you know what? It works. <laughs> Close enough. We're rounding. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I do know about EPS is that it's a very dynamic environment. So, you know, you come into work every day and typically you know what you're going to be doing, but oftentimes you're blindsided. Um, but it keeps it keeps you on your toes. It does. Um, so you are the director of manufacturing and engineering. You are the director of He'll manufacturing right engineering. <laughs> Let's talk about the challenges that that presents right now mm-hmm. with our Epic line. And let's talk about how you're overcoming those challenges. So I would say that the biggest challenge that we're seeing right now uh, in, in the near future and even you know long-term is, is gonna be the ramp up in production. Um, so we have been a company that's been dedicated to small scale production, You know, maybe a dozen units, a couple dozen units. I think our bigger orders have been on the order of a few hundred units. Um, but now moving forward, if we, if we look at, you know, Next year and the following years, we're talking thousands into tens of thousands. And then soon enough, it'll be hundreds of thousands of units. So it's handling that ramp up. So that's a, that's kind of a good point that you just talked about. So all, a lot of our previous projects have all been R&D prototype stuff that we've had companies come and say, I need a battery to do this. So it has been designed from nothing to sending it off. And they've all been unique in one way or another Mm -hmm. so it's a it's a challenge to get the manufacturing process down and once you do get it down you're done and you've got to tear it down break down the manufacturing process and set up for a different type yes of uh battery with the epic line it should be a little bit easier once we get that manufacturing process in place yeah it'll be more on the front end kind of getting that process in place so you can do the high-quantity production that, that we need to hit in the coming years. But then mm-hmm. hopefully once it's up and running, it's a much smoother process, and, and we're not tearing it down anytime soon. How much of of the manufacturing process for Epic are we going to automate? Uh, so it's going to be a scaled process. So as we increase our capacity, you know, we'll look at automating more and more processes. Off the bat, we have a few processes that, you know, at the cell level, um, and at some of the other more complicated processes, we'll look at automating one to reduce the cycle time at that process, um, but also to improve the quality of the process. So I would say, you know, starting off over the next, let's say, year, we're probably only looking at maybe 20 to 30 percent. Um, two, three years from now, maybe you're closer to 50 to 60, you know, five, eight years from now, maybe you're pushing, you know, 90 percent automation. So that's kind of a... Uh scary thing for a lot of people to hear is automating this right and because a lot of people are going to think well you're not going to need that many people to 
be employed there to be able to make this yeah. happen. But that is not the truth. No, no, that is really not the truth. So let's kind of quell the fears that some people may have about that. So if you have an automated line, what kind of people are you going to need working on that automated line, like skills, uh, degrees, college, technical college, that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. What kind of people would Dan Lane, the director of manufacturing engineering, be looking to hire for the automation line. Yes. So, so certainly, you know, one of the key ones that's going to come to mind is your, your automation technicians, automation engineers, um, key to kind of keep the process moving, you know, maintenance equipment, work through those processes. But even in addition to that, you know, you have to go through and check that the automation is running appropriately. So you need staff on the floor to go through and check processes, make sure that things are running appropriately. So quality engineers, um, looking at the inputs, the outputs, um, and then a whole litany of other things in terms of, you know, material movement and such to, manage that uh, inventory personnel and there will still always be those processes that are best done by hand sure um, but yeah there, there'll still be a substantial amount of, of manual labor involved right so what what do you see it well in the near-term future we're we're putting up a, a sprung building yes right let's talk about that a little bit yes so it's affectionately named the tent the tent by, by the company the um which is fun because i started here in the building and then i moved to a trailer Mm -hmm. And now my future is a tent. You're yeah, going so backwards. It's, it's, I'm slowly going backwards here. <laughs> you are. I, I don't know what's what's next. It could be so. the honey. It could be the honey bucket. Could be next, man. <laughs> the blue lagoon, or just the field. <laughs> Dan works on the field. Where's Dan's office? I, I wouldn't mind that. I've seen pheasant out in the field. Oh yeah. So if we can there set there with an over under, mm -hmm. I'm game. There you go. Although the airport's next door, so they might have an issue with that. <laughs> they, they might. Hey, where's Dan? He's out in his office. Where's his office? That porta potty out there. That's where Dan is. Oh, and he's. We'll get you too. one of the handicap ones because they're bigger, so you can actually have a desk in there. Can it be standing? A standing desk. Yes. Well, sure. You know, we're here to accommodate you, Dan. Make it your own. <laughs> Nothing to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. So, so going back to the to the sprung building, it's it's a really interesting concept that they came up with, and it's been used by a, a number of companies. I believe Blue Origin uses it, uh, Tesla uses it, and a few other big-name companies I've seen use it. Um, but essentially, it's a, a stretched membrane over a, a metal framework. Uh, mm -hmm. Great thing is that it's very quick to put up. When you're looking at any kind of industrial building, typically you're looking, you know, let's say, 18 to 24 months. Uh, for simple buildings, it could be you know, up to 36, 48 months for more complicated buildings. Sprung facilities can be put up in a matter of really, let's say, four months. Um, so you go through, lay down your concrete pad. Once that cures, you bring sprung out. They'll put in the metal framework and then do the stretched over canvas. Yeah, we had a lot of those over in like Kuwait, Iraq, mm -hmm. Afghanistan because of that reason right there. You can configure the inside to whatever it is you need, heating, air conditioning, office space, all that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty economical way to go. Did, did those companies uh, like Tesla and Blue Origin, how long did they keep them or do they still have them? Uh, in our conversations, I mean, they, they still have them. Obviously, we haven't talked directly to Tesla or any of them, but in our talks with Sprung, you know, they will last upwards of, I think, 50 years. Really? Yes. Mm -hmm. For just a slab of concrete and Slab of concrete, some stretched over tent. canvas, man. I mean... Keep a bottle of Flex Seal if you rip it, but I, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Yeah. And then another great thing is, you know, we're starting off at, I think it's 15,000 square feet of shared manufacturing and office space. It'll probably be, let's say, 13,000 manufacturing, 2,000 office space. Uh, but with Sprung, you can add on quickly. So if we feel the need to expand it, we can lay additional concrete on the south side and then continue to build it out. And behind our facility, we can go in and do some S-bends and 
really probably take it upwards from 15,000, maybe up to 60 or 75,000 square feet if we needed to. That's uh, that's quite a bit. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about 3d printing, mm-hmm. right? So that is kind of a big thing now. Like you can buy a 3d printer for 125 bucks, put it on your desk and 3d print a lot of stuff, but we print a lot of our own, uh, fixtures and yes. prototype pieces before it goes off to manufacturing. So if somebody was going to want to get into 3d printing, what would you recommend them starting off with? Uh, you know, we've always been a fan of some of the really common printers out there. Uh, I know Creality comes to mind. Uh, Prusa comes to mind. One of the big things is just the communities around those. If you go buy, a, let's say, not an obsolete but a less-known printer, if there's an issue with it, finding services for it, finding feedback on what to do with that um, can be challenging. But with the Creality line of printers as well as, you know, Prusa, it's such a great community around those. that If you do run into an issue, finding a solution is generally a pretty quick process. And then also ability to modify them and, and make them competitive with even higher end printers. Um, you know, we have a couple Ender 5 Pluses that we've upgraded and we'll put them against, let's say, a Raise 3D. Uh, that's four grand. The Ender 5 Plus upgraded is maybe, you know, a thousand or so. That's that's pretty uh, pretty cool. I know that, that we 3D print a lot of parts before we actually send them out to the machining. Yes. To get them machined into the actual part. What, how, how does that save us time and money when we do that? Uh, the biggest thing is, is any design process is, is iteration. So if you can go through and prototype a, whether it's a fixture or a part, see how it functions, and then be able to, be able to iterate on that quickly, um, it's a phenomenal way to improve your processes, improve your, your end product. Uh, the biggest thing is, you know, if, let's say if you're working with external resources, you go through, you do a design, you send it out for manufacturing, it's a one or two week lead time. You get it back, you find a change you want to make. Okay, I'm going to update the design, send it back out. Now I'm in a total of, let's say, three or four weeks before I get iteration two back. So now I've got a month and two iterations. 3D printing, do the design, send to the printer, have it next day, and then work that process. And you could have, you know, two or three iterations in a matter of two or three days versus two or three weeks. It's also pretty nice as well, too, because when I was building those mock-ups, I just needed some 3D parts printed, and I went to you, and you had Connor, hey, Connor, do these for me. And in a matter of two hours, I had all the parts I needed mm-hmm. instead of waiting four weeks for parts to come in, and it's super quick, super cheap. So if you had, um, let's let's go back to, to 17-year-old Dan Lane real quick. 17. He just, he'll just pick a number. No, 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 no. no. There, there's, there's a reason behind this. Oh, right. boy. 17. I'm a, I'm a little worried now. Dan doesn't at, even at know why. 17. <laughs> at, at 17 years old, let's say Dan wanted to get the required education and knowledge to work at EPS in the manufacturing department. Mm-hmm. What courses, school technical colleges, would you recommend somebody at that age looking to get into a career in the aerospace? What would you recommend them doing? Someone who wants to get into manufacturing, engineering in general, you know, whether it's aerospace, medical, um, I would say the biggest thing is start working on building up your experience. Um, So if you can work at local machine shops, that's great. If you can work in environments where you're developing parts, machining parts, anything along those lines, having that experience is one thing that I think is phenomenal in any engineer. Um, you'll have engineers that go through college, very intelligent people, but until you actually go through and get your hands on parts and understand how to make things and how to make things work, um, having that level of knowledge makes you all the more dangerous uh, when it comes to being an engineer or being a manufacturing 
personnel. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. um, I had a mechanical engineer come down to me with a bolt in his hand and say, do you know what grade this bolt is? And I was like, aren't you the mechanical engineer that went to school? And, I, uh, I bet there's a stamp on that bolt that tells you. There, I showed I him the stamp on the bolt that said this is what it is. And so you're right, mm -hmm. hands-on experience. Yep, and then going into college, you know, obviously college is great for, for engineering, um, but there's even a number of programs within college that you can look at. I know when I went to Case Western, we did uh, SAE Baja. Mm -hmm. So that was a matter of a team of about, I think it was 15 or so of us. We'd go through and we'd design and develop uh, Baja vehicles. Did you actually get to drive one? That's oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, oh. we, it was a whole collegiate thing. So you have, I want to say, probably about 150 colleges in the U.S. There's different Baja teams, and they go through design and build their own vehicles. And then you meet up across the U.S., and you have Baja competitions. Did you win? Uh, we took high in a few of the events when I was there. And then once I left, we got better. I, <laughs> I don't know why that is. <laughs> It could be that we had like 32 inch king shocks on a 10 horse power bridge strand. <laughs> we kind of made more of a rock crawler than a Baja car. We weren't really there sure what go. we were doing at the time. That's fun. That's exciting. Okay. Yeah, but it was well, a great time. I know that Bridgerland here in Logan, Utah has an automations program, and, and one of your um, people in your department, yes. Susanna, she's, she's in the middle of that right now, right? Yeah. So she graduated, I think it was about three or four months ago. Uh, so she's with us full time, but it, it's been, you know, very helpful having her experience um, going through Bridgeland, you know, learning what they have to offer. Um, and then I know we're in talks with, I think, a, a number of others as well uh, through Bridgeland. Yeah, it's, uh, you don't have to get a four-year degree to be successful. Yeah, absolutely and, and not. And to break into an aerospace, because a lot of people hear aerospace and I need to be like, an aerospace engineer. I need to be a rocket scientist. I need to, you know, have masters and PhDs and all this kind of stuff. But there are so many different levels of education that are needed mm -hmm. within the aerospace company and industry alone that a technical college, because she is our only automations yes. person right now. Yep. And uh, we would be kind of dead in the water without her. Absolutely. And just to kind of, you know, reflect on that point, yes, technical colleges, technical degrees, whether it's an automation, machining, there's a whole litany of degrees out there that are phenomenal to have, you know, jobs pay well, and the work is there. Um, so those that are interested in, you know, doing hands-on work, certainly, you know, don't think you need to go into an engineering degree, not that that's a bad thing, but, you know, also look at technical degrees. Yeah. All right, Dan, I got the big question for you. What is going to be the biggest challenge getting Epic to the million units a year production level? That is a loaded question. Is there a very <laughs> loaded question? Very loaded question. Very, very loaded. And you can and and you can have many bolts in the chamber, whatever they want to be, but you it's know, loaded. It, it is going to be that iterative process to get the design to where we can we we can meet that quantity. Um, so I know you know we're talking as a company future iterations um, and kind of working with that design process to really get it to where you can fully automate that process. I would add on to that, not only that, but it has to be a design that is economical yes. because you could have the most fantastic design in the world, but if it's not economical to produce it, it does you no good. Yep. So easy to assemble, low cost to assemble. Um, and then, you know, meets the requirements of that, that we have set forth for it. And if we can get that, that's a winning combination. Safe and reliable as well. Yes. Because safety is, is EPS's primary goal. 
right? We don't want to put things on an aircraft that are going to be unsafe. We don't want people to get on an aircraft and think there's a whole bunch of batteries underneath me, right? Because when I get on an airplane now, I don't think about the engines mm. at all. I just think, hey, I'm on an airplane. I'm going to Dallas-Fort Worth. So just tangent to that real quick, Spencer. <clears throat> Okay. If the Spencer sits next to you on an airplane, are you worried about the nuts and bolts? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would be too. That's why they stick me in a seat where there are no nuts and bolts. Now, I if I sit by the window, that's a different conversation. I even refuse to get into a car with him. Well, that has not happened yet, I don't think. Well, no, he was the one driving. That's right. But that can also be dangerous. Uh, yeah, that's so, true. So what about people who think, wait, you're, why am I going to work at a manufacturing facility for batteries? There are people who think that's really dangerous. Arc flash. You right. know, the the burns. The yeah, I mean it's it certainly is dangerous. But you you know you lay out the, the the processes. You know you go through your trainings and just educate your people on on how to handle these products. Um, in, in a essence, you know you have a positive negative terminal, whether it's on a single battery pack or on a whole system, uh, and you want to avoid you know shorting those together. So, I'm totally taking a left turn right now because we're almost out of time. Are, are we going to talk about ice fishing? No, <laughs> ice fishing is stupid. That's a horrible, right, that's, horrible. That's a right turn, not a left turn. No, we went ice fishing this winter, and uh, we didn't catch anything, but we polished off a fifth of bourbon. Well, I mean, that's usually what you do when you ice I, fish. I thought you were going to say you just, point, you just got pneumonia or something. Is or, or <laughs> no, no, not at all. Gross. I was going to ask, are we going catfishing this weekend? Uh, let's see, perhaps Sunday, but I might be going fly fishing with Jamie on Sunday. Oh, man. <laughs> I should probably go with you guys because I want to see Jamie hook his nose again. Absolutely. I missed that the first time. I think we just put a big streamer on there and I'm whacked up in the back of the head. Oh, we could put like a massive Dave's hopper on there because it's hopper season right now mm -hmm. and just let him. We probably can't discuss our favorite uh, fly pattern names, can we here? No, we cannot. <laughs> this is, this is the left turn we were taking? It, yes. And this is the left yeah. turn? Yep. This is a, a clean show, my friend. Although people that design flies for fly fishing are very creative in the names that they come up with. And Ooh. if any of our listeners are curious... If you want a good chuckle... Yes. Go just Google different types of flies for fly fishing, and you'll be like, these people are crazy. So... Left turn complete. Let's get back on track. We're almost out of time. What would your final thoughts about EPS, working for EPS, and the future of EPS be? You know, I, I came back because it was an exciting environment. Um, the opportunity here is really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When you look at where the company's been, where the company's growing, and the growth that we've seen over the past, let's say, five years, and then we look at the projections that, you know, BD has laid out and that our number of teams in, on our company have laid out and like I mentioned, the opportunity is, is ever-growing, and it's a very exciting place to be. Sweet. You heard it from Dan Lane himself. Dan Lane himself. I'm just over here looking at types of fly names, and now I'm distracted. But, Dan, thank you. Appreciate it. I have a lot of research i got to do after this. Yes, you do. But thank you for showcasing the future of EPS and manufacturing and ramping up. Exciting things to come. So, everyone, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Aviation Renaissance. Leave us a five-star review. Follow us on social media. Go to our website at epsenergy.com. We'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by Electric Power Systems. EPS is a leading provider of high-voltage, high-power, certifiable electric power systems for high-reliability applications. Its mission is to power transportation's electric renaissance by providing smarter, safer, more reliable, lighter, and certifiable batteries.